We've been studying the book of Habakkuk, and it consists of a dialogue between the prophet and God. It opens with Habakkuk complaining about the people of Judah, who are marked by violence and injustice. It leads to the real complaint, why does God tolerate what is wrong? The Lord answers him by saying, I am raising up the Babylonians, which is not a satisfactory answer to Habakkuk, in part because the Babylonians were worse than the Judeans, the people in Judah. The Babylonians were marked by a sense of self-pride, self-governing, autonomy, as well as cruelty. Interestingly enough, ironically, these are the same sins that the people of Judah are guilty of as well. So I mentioned last week, we need to keep in mind that as Habakkuk dialogues with God, he does so with an attitude of humility. That is to say, as forceful as his questions or complaints are, he does not challenge God's character. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, uh, his second complaint is couched in the reality of who God is. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. He closes his second complaint, chapter 2, verse 1, with the words, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. That is to say, Habakkuk will wait humbly for God's answer. And God's answer begins in chapter 2, verse 2. We looked at last week. It begins with a threefold command. Uh, write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the, re- the revelation awaits at an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then we hear the words in verse number 4. Habakkuk 2, 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. So I mentioned last Sunday, the question, what is faith, is the third most important question we can ask. The first is, who is God? What is his nature? What is his relationship to the universe? What is his relationship to humanity? The second most important question is, what is humanity? What is a human being? Where did we come from? What is our purpose? What is our relationship to the universe? What is our relationship to God? And this leads to the third question, what is faith? I would suggest to you that it is the means of a relationship between God and man, which God has ordained. I add the qualification which God has ordained because there is another possibility of a relationship with God, and that is rebellion. But faith is God's choice. We should, however, not skip the first part of the verse, which we did last week. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. This is where we'll begin our study today. Um, For right now, we should see that pride is incompatible with true faith. Humility is the key. What is faith? Faith is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth. How are we to have faith? We saw last week, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart is the will, the source of our thoughts, words, and actions. The The soul is the seat of our emotions. The mind is the intellect, 
and strength is where all of these meet the external world. And in each part, we are to have faith. With our hearts, we are to be humble. With our souls, we are to trust God. With our minds, we are to receive and believe the truth. And with our strength, we are to act on that truth. Last week, I used the analogy of a ladder, which probably should have used a staircase, I think might be a better analogy, in which each aspect of faith is a stair, a step. But it is, in fact, a living staircase, one in which the stairs are growing. They're not the same in dimension, so it's an odd-looking staircase. They grow at different rates. So I mentioned last week, with rungs on a ladder, but here we'll use steps in a staircase, some people find one step that they like more than the others, and they sort of camp out there, and they decorate it, and they paint it, they, they embellish it, um, and they sort of look down on others who are engaged with the other steps. So they may, in fact, focus on the mind, which is oftentimes the case. They receive the truth, they believe it, they're not so strong on the trust or on the will of humility. (laughs) Every aspect of faith is to be true of us. And since faith is a gift, God has given some of us stronger aspects of faith than others. Some people trust more easily than others. Some have a stronger intellect. Some are much more active. They, they like to put their, their beliefs into actions. Um, but we are to have each aspect. And we are to use each aspect. Because after all, what is a staircase for if not to climb? We don't just sort of camp out on a step and say, I really like this step. We, in fact, are to use them to climb. If we don't, then I, th- I would suggest to you that what we have, in fact, is false faith. And we're just like the Babylonians. They are described in the first part of verse number four, which I read to you. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But also in verse number five. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. I would argue that in these verses we hear the opposite of faith. The just will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Well, what about the unrighteous? What about the unjust? The four aspects of heart, soul, mind, and strength, I believe we see here as well. Os Guinness has written that contrast is the mother of clarity, and I think that's certainly the case here. Instead of the just, the righteous, we hear of the unjust. We hear of their heart, the will. While it is to be marked by humility in a person of faith, here we see he is puffed up. He is arrogant. We should agree on this principle that where there is pride, there is no faith. They are incompatible. They can't stand together. Instead of humbling oneself before God, the unjust, the unrighteous is arrogant. His will is not to do what is right. His desires are not upright. Then when it comes to the, uh, the soul, the emotions, a person of faith trusts God and rests in God. But here we are told of the unjust, the Babylonians, never at rest, as greedy as the grave, 
like death is never satisfied or cannot be satisfied. Only God can give rest and give a resting place. We hear that familiar verse from Isaiah, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. But we also hear in Isaiah, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. A person of faith trusts in God. But a person of, who is not a person of faith, an unjust person, in fact, does not find rest. Is never content. Greedy as a grave and like death is never satisfied. So many have died and yet death wants even more. So we should set forth a second principle here. That where there is no rest, or peace, where there is no contentment, there is no faith. Then the matter of the mind, intellect and reason. In the brief phrase we hear, wine betrays him. And this is not a statement about alcoholic beverages, okay? But rather about the betrayal of intoxication. And I would suggest to you that intoxication, at least metaphorically, stands in opposition to faith. What is faith? Receiving and believing what is truth and acting as though it were the truth. And what is truth? That God exists. Intoxication affects, negatively, our ability to perceive correctly. And in that sense, it betrays us. What is perceived and believed is unreality, not the truth. And one acts wrongly as a result. If you take these three together, the heart, soul, and mind, it leads to the fourth, that is action. And rather than being obedient, doing what God wills, we read, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. So the Babylonians, those who are marked as people not of faith, have an arrogant heart, a greedy, discontented soul, a mind that does not perceive things clearly or correctly, and it leads to acts in selfish and sinful ambition. As a result, from verses 6 to 19, God pronounces five woes on the Babylonians. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you might remember that in Matthew 7, Jesus pronounced seven woes on the religious leaders of his time. Here we have the five woes that are pronounced on the Babylonians. Just a uh, short digression of sorts. There are at least three possible ways to approach this passage. The first is to see it as purely predictive. That is to say, God's telling Habakkuk, this is what's going to happen. And in fact, it did happen. And so we can say, praise the Lord, God keeps his word. The second way is to see it as an affirmation or confirmation of cause and effect. You know, whatever goes around comes around. Babylonians were rotten people, and so rottenness is going to come home to roost in their place. The third way to approach this is to look for modern application. And as we read through this, I, I think you will see it has a lot to do with social justice. And oftentimes this passage is taken to be applied locally, nationally, globally to the matter of social justice. But I would argue that those three are fine, but there's a fourth which combines the three. That is to say, we should never see any part of Scripture as purely predictive. God's not a magician or clairvoyant. He's showing us what he can 
what he can do and what he knows about the future. And yet there is a predictive aspect to this passage, but it's not exclusively predictive. The world is not simply a, a case of cause and effect. Such a view locks God out of the system. It's a closed system, and so it's all cause and effect, and God has nothing to do with it. Yes, there is cause and effect. By God's grace, it doesn't always happen the way that it should, because if it did, we'd all be dead. God is gracious. God will punish the wicked eventually in his time and in his way. It is here that we are to look to him in faith, trusting him to do what is best. In our world, if someone commits a crime, even if they are caught and they go to trial, if they get away with it, we might think, well, justice has not been done. The reality is no one will escape God's justice. And then the matter of social justice, it is not the thing to which all of Scripture points. It's not the most important thing Christians can do. We can and we should stand for what is right. But we should also know there are things we can do and things we cannot do, morally, biblically. What we can do is to look to God in faith. You might be thinking, well, there it is again, Damon, you keep talking about faith. Listen, the world is changing dramatically, deeply, more than we could have ever imagined or anticipated. When the changes are complete, we may not recognize the world in which we live. We are to be anchored, anchored in our faith, not a mindless faith that allows us to think like the surrounding culture and then God simply becomes a magical God who can make sure that we don't have to suffer anything that we don't have to experience tough times. We are to be anchored not to a belief system that claims to have all the answers to all of your questions. In that way, that system of belief becomes your God. We are not to be anchored in taking up causes, looking to them to give purpose and meaning to our lives, something to keep us going. But we are to be anchored with a faith that is humble and obedient, that is trusting, that receives and believes the truth and moves us to act. And such a faith is to be anchored in Jesus Christ. The five woes against Babylon. The first is found in verses 6, 7, and 8. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. The passage begins with a proverb, a taunting proverb, with ridicule and scorn. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. The conquered look for revenge. They look for relief. Uh, Note here, the King James Version translates this verse, uh, particularly verse uh, 6 and 7, in a much more literal way. Shall Shall not all take up a parable against him, that is against Babylon, and a taunting proverb against him, say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? 
and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Extortion is how the NIV translated, is literally to be covered with mud. And the image is that of quicksand, that as the Babylonians extort and basically take all they want from the nations they conquer, they are in fact putting their feet deeper and deeper in quicksand. And the time will come, verse number seven, when the debtors, or literally the biters, will rise up and make them tremble. Verse 8, those who are left will plunder you. And why will this happen? You have plundered many nations. You have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And at this point, one is tempted to say, oh, see here, this is what goes around, comes around. But this is to fail to take into account that God is the faithful judge. Just as he raised up the Babylonians against Judah for their violence and injustice, He will raise up those Babylon conquered and plundered to judge Babylon for their arrogance and cruelty. That is the first woe. The second is found in verses 9, 10, and 11. Here we find that ambitious schemes are repaid with shame. By By the way, the first woe, the plunderer, the plunderer is plundered. The reversal. And here we find that their schemes, driven by ambition, will be replaced with shame. Look at verses 9, 10, 11. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. The picture painted here is of a person, but it's Babylon, who builds his domain through unjust gain, through theft. And he builds his place or his palace so that nothing can touch him. He will escape the clutches of ruin. We get different versions, but Herodotus told us in the 5th century BC, he was a Greek historian, by the way, that the outer walls of Babylon were 56 miles in length. That is, they encompassed 200 square miles. They were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high. This sounds pretty secure. It seems that the Babylonians had gone out of their way, in fact, to make sure that nothing could hurt them. They thought they would be safe. Other people have thought this as well. Obadiah writes to the people of Edom, the Edomites, God spoke through him. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Babylon, which straddled the Euphrates River that had this immense wall, they feel like they are secure. But to add to their security, the Babylonians did what they, the people they had conquered, the Assyrians did, and that is they would shuffle people around. So they would take people from one kingdom that they had conquered and send them to another kingdom, and the people there, they'd send them somewhere else. And the thinking is, there's no way these people can all get together, you know, and conspire to try to overthrow us. They just can't work it out. 
they would be demoralized, they would be destabilized, they're just trying to get used to a new place, a new environment, new weather patterns. Yeah, there's no way that they would be able to raise up any effort against the Babylonians. But instead, God says, they are bringing shame on themselves. They are forfeiting their lives because the very structures that they had built would cry out and echo the sounds of their ruin. The third woe is found in verses 12, 13, and 14. That sinful building is replaced by destruction. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Here the picture is painted of one who uses bloodshed to build a city, who uses crime to establish a town. But there's a twist here. Has not the Lord Almighty determined this? And again, I think we go back to chapter 1. Habakkuk's first complaint. How can God use the wicked to accomplish his purposes? And here, just a side note, some things we really need to keep in mind. First of all, God's use of the Babylonians, or of anyone for that matter, is not a sign of his favor. One should not think that because someone is used by God to accomplish his purposes, that they have found favor in God's eyes. We should not think that they have obtained mercy, that they have found grace, that somehow they have magically become God's people. God's use of people does not sanctify them. Many times, such people are just as wicked after the fact, after God has used them, if not even more so. After God has used them, instead of repenting and coming to God, they increase in their wickedness. And the Old Testament is filled with examples like this. Uh, Think of Balaam, uh, the prophet who was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And instead, by God's command, he blesses Israel five times. And one might think that this Balaam guy, because God spoke to him in dreams, uh, was a believer, a follower of the true path. But he was not. It was his advice to Balak that led Israel into idolatry, we find in Numbers 31. Balaam is not forgotten, by the way. He's mentioned at least twice uh, or three times in the New Testament. I'll just mention one. In the letter to the church of Pergamum, Revelation 2. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. He was used by God to bless Israel. This was not a sign of God's favor. What about the men of Ai? Do you remember the story after the walls of Jericho fell down, Israel goes up uh, to fight against Ai? And the men of Ai defeat them. God uses the men of Ai to defeat Israel so that the sin of Achan, who stole, contrary to God's commands in Jericho, so it comes to light. God uses Ai to expose the sin of Achan. It does not mean that that this is a sign of God's favor. What about Saul? God used him to unite the 12 tribes to settle old debts, to win battles, to bring peace to Israel. The evidence seems to indicate he was not a believer, yet he was used by God. 
What about Jeroboam? God used Saul to unite Israel. God used Jeroboam to divide Israel, to take the ten northern tribes to punish Israel for its idolatry. And what did he do? He led the ten tribes into deeper idolatry. But he was used by God. The point? God's use of an individual or a nation like Babylon does not signify his favor. The second thing is that God's equipping or enabling of the Babylonians is not a sign of his favor either. Consider what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What, what about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, yet have not love, I am nothing. See, being equipped is not a sign of God's favor. Let's be clear. It is God who raised up the Babylonians. He enabled them to do what they did. To deny that is, in fact, to destroy the whole message of the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians. He gave them the power, the ability, the skill, the intelligence, the wisdom. He gave them victories. But as these five woes make abundantly clear, they are not people of faith. They are not believers. By the way, we are quite mistaken if somehow we imagine that God only equips or enables with skills his people. Because if that's the view that you take, then the question comes up, who equips the rest? If God only gives abilities, talents, gifts to his people, then who gives it to all the other people? It's God who does so. He is the sovereign Lord. And as we read in verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We are not to judge or to affirm that we are Christians by the fact that we have been used by God, even to great good, by the fact that we have spiritual gifts. It is by the grace of God that we are his people. Thirdly, God's tolerance is not necessarily a sign of his mercy. God's long-suffering, his patience, in fact, may indicate the opposite. Romans 9.22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Any delay in these five woes coming to pass do not indicate mercy, do not weaken them, but it means that what will be poured out will be even greater. And lastly, there is a difference between God's purpose and God's law. If you look in Scripture, both are referred to oftentimes as God's will. God's purposes may be referred to as God's secret will. God's law is God's revealed will. We read in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. I would say those are God's purposes. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of this law. 
God's purposes are unknown to us. They are secret. His law is known to us. This is Habakkuk's dilemma. Because it seems that what God has said in his law is quite different than what God intends to do through the Babylonians. And this is what we hear in the third woe. These people are breaking God's law while fulfilling his purposes. Briefly, the last two woes. The fourth woe, verses 15, 16, and 17. The one who shames will be shamed. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it out from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Again, one might say, oh, Damon, this is what goes around, comes around. So what the Babylonians did, that's what's going to happen to them. The one who shamed, who got people drunk to look on their nakedness, not literally, but figuratively, that's what's going to happen to the Babylonians. But this is the Lord's doing. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. The intoxication, the drunkenness, the blindness is a result of God's judgment on them. In in Jeremiah 26, we read of the cup of the wine of God's wrath. This is what the Babylonians are going to drink. And then the fifth woe. The idolater is forsaken by his idols. Verses 18 and 19. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. And here in this final woe, I would argue we come full circle. What is faith? It is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth. And what is truth? It is that God is there. God exists and who he is. Therefore, faith is believing the truth that God exists and that we can be in relationship with him to the God who exists. This is not true of an idol. This is not true of an idol. Something that a person has created, one's own creation, which cannot speak, which cannot come to life, which can't even wake itself up. If you say wake up, it doesn't wake up. It's a stone after all, which cannot give guidance, which has no breath. This is the culmination of unfaith, if you wish. This is unbelief. Blinded by intoxication, the Babylonians have failed to see what is true. But as God's people, we need to hear the words that come in the very next verse. Verse number 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The reality is that God exists and he is the truth. And we are to believe 
as Habakkuk came to believe. And the Lord willing, next Sunday, we will see that transformation that occurs in chapter 3. That the man who questioned God in humility came to see by faith the truth of who God is. And he worships him. We're on him. We're going with Habakkuk on this journey. And the Lord willing, we will see how we can go from difficult times and perhaps questions in our lives to not necessarily receiving the answer that we want, but coming to see who God is. And with our hearts, we will humble ourselves. With our souls, we will trust him. With our minds, we will believe him. And by his grace, with our strength, we will do what is right and we will obey him. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are many times when we wish we knew exactly what you were doing. We wish we knew where this was all going, not in the big picture, but in the little things, day to day, in our lives lives of friends, of children. But we are to be people of faith. Humbly before you, we should trust you and believe what you say. And by your grace, do the things you've called us to do. I think we prefer things to be more manageable, to see you see this passage as, as purely predictive that you know what's going to happen and we can rejoice that we have a God that knows what's going to happen. Or we see it as cause and effect. What goes around comes around. Or we see it as giving us some cause, some meaning and purpose to life. The reality is we are to trust you to know that you are doing what is best. We may not understand your purposes, but we are to be obedient. You've commanded us, we are to obey. We can only do so by your strength. You are in your holy temple. May the whole earth be silent before you. Again, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. May your spirit and your grace be with us in the coming week. May we have a sense of your presence each moment of every day. May you use this pandemic, and we ask that in your mercy you would end it soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.